Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Well, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where we talk about everything nonprofit. Uh, Again, this is presented by the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. We couldn't do this without them. And the other thing that we couldn't do this without is your questions. And we would love to ask you, if you have any questions, go ahead and shoot them to us on the Nonprofit Everything webpage, or you can go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage. That's AllianceForNevadaNonprofits.com. You could ask us a question there. Or you can go to Facebook and ask it on the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits Facebook page. We, we get those questions as well. And with that, we will jump right in. Our nonprofit offers parenting classes for free to low-income single moms. Recently, we started exploring other ways to earn money, and one of our board members suggested charging a fee for this service for those families who can more easily afford our services. Can we charge a fee for this service? And if we do, will we get taxed for this? So the short answer is yes, you can. Um, You know, revenue generating activities can be critical components for uh, nonprofits to sustain themselves. Although I will say this, oftentimes board members in particular, love you board members if you're listening, but um, have this tendency of they think, oh, let's just, yeah, add this business component, this, you know, fee component, something that's kind of this earned income piece, which while it's great, that doesn't just happen overnight. And there's all sorts of other resources, investment, marketing, promotion that has to happen to make that work. So that's a whole other probably social enterprise topic. But, um, you know, the short answer is yes. Now, the key is, is that um, the law, so the law sets no limits on the fees you charge. But at the end of the day, if those fees aren't related, if you're not offering sort of service-based, you know, programs or or something that is in line with your mission or your programs, then it would be probably subject to unrelated business income tax, your, you know, CPAs. And Andy, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but could certainly jump in and say, hey, that's not really related. That was something totally random that you're doing that isn't tied to your mission at all. And great, you're earning some money from it. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, that's, you're going to get charged some income, you know, business income tax. So you need to really, I think, balance that out a little bit and do come up with a business plan for this kind of thing, right? It's not just an idea. You say, yes, let's just randomly start charging fees. I mean, prioritize your objectives and charging the fee. Why? And is this the best way? If, if, you know, is that the best way to actually accomplish this? Is there a market for this? Is there anybody who would even want that? And to me, it starts with thinking a little bit about this from a business plan perspective, like you would anything. Yeah. That, so yeah, Stacy's exactly right. I, the unrelated business income tax piece of it gets a little bit complicated. In this case, um, I think the risk is that you're you're providing a service for um, low-income families to have childcare, which is awesome. Um, at some point, if you start charging a fee, you you cross the line into regular old for-profit daycare, um, which which could also be a nonprofit because you might have the educational component attached to it too. So. From an unrelated business income tax perspective, I think you've got enough, there are enough like, like off-ramps on that, that you might not ever have a problem with unrelated business income tax. You might not have to pay it. But it's complicated enough that you would you definitely want to talk to an attorney that knows how that works or an, an accountant that knows how that works so that they can advise you on that very specific circumstance. Uh, as, far as, as far as 
being able to charge fee for services? Yeah, absolutely. It happens all the yeah. time. So if you go to a performing arts center, you don't get to go see Hamilton for free, right? <laughs> right? That's 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 not what it is. So they're they're doing something a little bit different. Um, so so charging a fee for service is a totally legitimate thing, and I think probably all nonprofits either do it or should be doing it if they're not thinking about it. Um, there's there's lots of ways that you can serve your mission without having to make everything totally free all the time. Absolutely. My nonprofit got a letter saying that our tax-exempt status was auto-revoked because they didn't listen and hadn't filed anything since we received the 501c3 status. Anyway, I'm one of the four board members, and I saw Form 2848, Power of Attorney, on the checklist. Is that absolutely necessary for me to complete if I'm part of the organization? I would like to get this entire packet out as soon as possible to have our status reinstated before our September fundraising event. I got good news and bad news on this one. So the, the good news is that you don't have to do the 2848 power of attorney. So um, maybe if I, I might want to clarify the question a little bit too, just the way I'm interpreting it. It sounds like you're, you're not, you got your 501c3 status. You sent the information into the IRS, and then you didn't ever file any 990s, and you're required to file even just a 990N, the postcard, just to show that you exist. You have to do that. And if you don't do that for five years in a row, the IRS will auto-revoke you. They'll just take away your status, and you have to basically start over again. Um, so when you're starting over, they give you some information about how you get reinstated, and there's a checklist. Is what you're talking about is this checklist that you're going through. Um, the One of the forms is the Form 2848, which is the power of attorney, and that's if you're having someone else that isn't part of the organization fill out these forms on your behalf, then they would you would fill out the power of attorney and say that this person has the authorization of the board to be able to fill out the rest of these forms for you. So if you're having an attorney doing it, the attorney will fill out the power of attorney form with you. Um, if you're doing it yourself as a member of the board, you don't need to do that because you are yourself. You're the, you're the member of the board and you're allowed to do it yourself. Um, the bad news is, is that you, there's no way you're going to be able to get reinstated by September. <laughs> I mean, even though, Yikes. I mean, I don't even remember when we got this question, but it's like, it's not going to be a month. Yeah. Um, it's about six months is the reinstatement process. It takes just as long as it does to get your 501c3 in the first place. Um, if you, you know, sort of word of warning to other organizations, if you are on the board of a nonprofit, um, one of the things that you need to make sure that you're doing is doing that 990. Even if you're a tiny little organization, exactly. not bringing in any money. I think we answered this question three or four weeks yeah. ago, right? Even if you're not bringing any money in, if you want to keep that status open, you have to do that 990N, that postcard. It takes you all of 10 minutes to do. And it's all online, too. It's not even a postcard anymore. It's just a web form. It's, it'll take you no time. Just do it. Do you know, Andy, if they send out reminders, or is it up to the nonprofit to actually remember that it's the time to fill out the little 990 card or do the full-on 990? Um, no, they don't send you any reminders. It's up to you to, to remember to do that. Um, if you're curious, like, so if you're on the board and maybe somebody said that they did it, but you don't believe them, because it is an online form, they, I think there's a receipt that you get back, but um, at least like a thank you for submitting form page that maybe somebody didn't print out. So there may not be any actual documentation from the person that said they did it. You can actually go on to the IRS's charity website and search for your organization. Do it by your EIN or by your organization name, and it'll tell you when the last, the data will show when the last time they received anything from you. So if it was, you know, three, four years ago and somebody's saying, oh, yeah, we already did that, that's a, a big red flag. You need to, 
you need to do that with the, the caveat that um, the IRS isn't always 100% on top of it, everything at the highest speed. It may take two or three weeks to get something to show up in the database. So. And if you really get desperate, you can probably call the IRS, although I recently did that on behalf of a client, and I'll tell you, if 45 minutes online, probably not something people want to be doing. But again, another good reason to stay ahead of the game on some of this. And if if you're a nonprofit that you're small or you're all-volunteer-driven and these are things you don't remember, create a little checklist, put it in your calendar to send you a reminder because nobody wants to have to go back through that process and reinstate. No way. No way. I've been hearing more and more about how much money is going into donor-advised funds. How does our organization get donations from them? Okay, I'm going to answer the question, but I first have to start with those listeners who may not be familiar with donor-advised funds. They're almost, uh, I like to call them like a charity checkbook, right? A tax-advantaged charity brokerage account. And it can be held by, you know, a 501c3 nonprofit. A lot of times community foundations have something they offer like this, uh, as do um, many of sort of Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund and some of these other, uh, you know, house, you know, brokerage houses that actually offer, they have their own 501c3 status to offer this, you know, tax advantageous um, kind of checking account to allow donors to actually make large donations of appreciated assets are typically common or, or cash. You want an immediate tax deduction, you put it into that donor advised fund, and then you have unlimited time which is the caveat here, uh, to, to spend that money. And I will share that there's a lot of controversy going on around this around the country. Have you heard about some I have, of it? I have. It's kind of crazy when you read about it. I mean, they actually talk about donor advised funds eating, you know, taking a bite out of the rest of philanthropy because they're becoming larger. You know, people say, what's the nation's biggest charity? The nation's biggest charity, one of them is Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund, which is a large donor advised fund through Fidelity, right? right? And uh, a lot of nonprofits say, wait a minute, I can't get money out of it. It's like the donor puts it in and never distributes it. So how is that really fair? So that's probably a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, but I wanted to give the background to our listeners who who might not know all, all about what's going on out there in the world of donor advised funds. How does an organization get donations? So I can at least share from my experience working years ago at um, a community foundation that um, oftentimes it was if there were opportunities to interact with our staff at the community foundation um, to share with us what was going on, you know, with with your nonprofit or your programs or things you wanted support for. We as staff, you you know, worked as that liaison. So when we would have a donor who set up a donor advised fund and wanted to actually make a disbursement but wasn't sure exactly where they wanted to give it, we would be almost like that, you know, that librarian for the donor to share, here's five organizations doing great work around that in the community. So we were in some ways the connector for that donor. Um, and then there was a lot of different iterations of that. But so one way was just sort of becoming connected to um, whether it was the donor themselves, if we knew them, just sharing, hey, you know, here's some 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 work going on if you ever have an opportunity um, you know, to, to support us through the donor advised fund is one opportunity. Um, there's also some of these um, brokerage funds actually have like the Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund and some of them actually have, you can go online and they have their own 
website now where you can look up some of these and some of them even have a grant process with it. So depending on what um, exactly, you know, the donor is wanting to do, some donors want to stay very anonymous and private, which is why they do it this way. Um, so that's my experience with it. I'd love to know yours. So, yeah, so the, the, I think the challenge with donor advised funds is that, that you, you feel like the money is being given to, it's, you, you called it a checking account. But it's actually a it's actually a charity, right? So it's right. going it's going into a five hundred one c three, so that the donor gets the tax deduction when the money moves the first time, and when it's distributed back out to another charity, there's no second tax deduction. The tax deduction is already taken, and um, it's it was created I think a long long time ago, like in nineteen eighteen or something yeah. like that. Yep. Um, so it's not a new product. It's something that's been around for a long time. It's just gotten a little bit more traction once let's Schwab and Vanguard and Fidelity all picked up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the answer to the question, though, is like, how do you get money out of a donor-advised fund? It's the exact same way you get donor money out of any donor because it's, you know, you called it a checkbook. It's the donor's checkbook. Yep. So they've got that money in their account. Theoretically, they should be more willing to give that money away out of that account than they are from just like their regular checking account because that money's already gone. They can't get it back. It's, in, it's not like they can decide to undo the charitable gift that they made to the fund. It's stuck in there forever. Um, and when you look at the numbers about, I mean, people do complain about money going into those funds and that it's not necessarily being directed out to charities doing direct work. Um, it's, it's a lot higher than your typical uh, private foundations. So private foundations, the IRS requires that you distribute 5%. Um, there's no law about donor-advised funds. They don't have to do anything. But when you look at the sort of the population of donor-advised funds, um, they're generally over 30%. So they're, they're distributing more than private foundations are. They're just not distributing 100%. And I think that's where the charities want them to be, is like, I would like you to distribute like 100% plus all the capital gains and, and dividends and everything else that you're making on them. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know where the right, I don't know where the right number is, but in order to tra- attract those donations, you have to do exactly what you've been doing, which is work with those donors. They've, they've made that charitable gift already. It's up to you to convince them that they need to transfer it out of that donor-advised fund into your account. So all the stuff that you normally do is the answer. I know that uh, last tax year, right when the the new sort of charitable tax laws went into effect, there was, at least around the country, a lot of movement of people who wanted to actually get the benefits of a tax deduction last last calendar year, and they didn't know how things were going to shake out this year. So there was a lot of research out there that was talking about um, and data out there showing that that there were these huge sums of money being put into donor advised funds last year so they could get the the donor would get the immediate tax deduction and have time to figure out how they wanted to spend it um, and there's you know sometimes a lot of times it's also a legacy planning tool so for those listening who may be donors it's a great tool to involve other generations and you know get get the tax benefit especially if you have an appreciated asset or a complex asset you need to gift i think donor advised funds are a great vehicle to do that uh and yeah for the nonprofits out there listening i think um figuring out if you have direct access to the donor like you said andy it's kind of the same thing and if you don't or if the donor is protected by a larger organization uh, how do you build relationships with that organization in case they actually share with donors opportunities out there? Yeah, I, I think the other thing, if, if you're in a nonprofit and you're receiving money from donor-advised funds, a lot of times you'll get a check, or actually it's an ACH usually. So you get an electronic transaction in your bank account, and it'll say like Vanguard Charitable. And it's up to you to contact Vanguard and say, hey, we got 
$362.50 from you on this date. Tell me what fund or what account that came from. And there's a fair chance if the donor didn't make the gift anonymously, there's a reasonable chance that they will be able to tell you the name of that person, um, that it came from the, you know, the Smith Fund. And then that'll be able to let you start tracking down who that might be so that you can have more direct contact with the donors. It's so another challenge with Donor Advised Fund is they've, there's like a level of obfuscation in between the actual donor and when the money hits the charity, which makes it really hard to continue to do your, you know, your day-to-day direct mail work or your major stewardship. Yeah, all that stuff is really hard to do because you're just, you're dealing with a faceless corporation who just does not care. Absolutely. So yeah, so dig into it as much as you can. And if they tell you that they can't give you the information, you know, asks, you know, has this gift been specifically given anonymously? Are you just too lazy to tell me? You know, and just keep, keep (laughs) hammering at them because you can eventually get to it if it's not given anonymously. Right. For this next question, we're going to bring in an expert. Uh, we've got Lynn Beggs. She's an attorney in Nevada. She's been practicing law here for over 20 years. She was previously general counsel for the Nevada State Board of Medical Examiners, and she's got some very specific expertise in healthcare and nonprofits, which is why we wanted to ask her this question. Here's the question. I've heard that there are some new laws in Nevada about nonprofits taking donations from pharmaceutical companies. Do you know anything about that? Well, there are some new regulations in place, or I should say some new statutes, and that's uh, subsequent to the 2017 Nevada legislative session. So under, um, at that point in time, there was a Senate bill, Senate Bill 265, that was introduced by a variety of senators to really address drug prices and transparency in manufacturing and pharmaceutical companies. And as a piece of that puzzle, the nonprofits got brought into this, at least those nonprofits who are either in a, they're involved in activities that are patient advocacy or medical funding. this is not going to cover nonprofits that are certainly, you know, outside of that realm, and nor would they most likely be receiving any sort of donation from a pharmaceutical manufacturer or retailer. So that bill has been codified in NRS Chapter 439B, and the title of that chapter is Restraining the Cost of Healthcare, which gives you a sense of really what the purpose of that bill was. The, the, the main focus of that bill was really looking at restraining pharmaceutical costs for consumers and being much more transparent uh, in things such as pharmaceutical reps and who's getting, who's getting what. But again, because there are nonprofits engaged in these activities that do get either donations or other things of value from pharmaceutical manufacturers and retailers that they were brought into this bill and now do have some reporting requirements. But the good news is for nonprofits, the reporting requirements are not overwhelming. At least I hope they're not overwhelming. That's good. (laughs) So in general, and I think one of the, just to understand what the reporting requirement really is, is that a nonprofit must every year annually by February 1st provide a report that states 
what if any contributions, donations, these can, this can be anything of value. It doesn't have to be monetary. They need to prepare a report that indicates if they've received some sort of donation from a pharmaceutical manufacturer. And I'm going to refer to the bill just because there are partly the statute because it's always better to be specific on this. So it's going to be from any donation, anything of value from a manufacturer, a third party or pharmacy benefit man manager or a trade or advocacy group for managers, third parties or pharmacy benefit managers. So that sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, <laughs> but in essence, it's really, so these pharmacy benefit managers, any sort of manufacturer, and they use this term third party, that sounds very broad, but it really only uh, is referring to insurers health benefit plans, those type of folks. So if you're a nonprofit, you're engaged in patient advocacy or somehow engaged in medical funding, research funding, and you get anything of value from one of these entities over the course of the previous calendar year, you need to basically write out a report that says what the donation was, what amount it was for, and who it was from, and additionally, the nonprofit needs to state what percentage of their gross annual revenue that donation is. So for, for non-monetary you know, donations, that may be a little more of a sticky uh, issue to come up with. But those are, that's basically the information. So there's no specific form that the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services requires for nonprofits. There are certain forms that they're going to be putting out there for pharmacies and pharmaceutical manufacturers, but you know, basically a nonprofit could include this information in their annual report if they do such a thing. They can, it can be on a one-page piece of paper. There's no specific, as long as that information there is there, it's fine. Now, the other question is, okay, so once we have this report, what do we do with it? Um, there is no requirement to send the report to the department if the nonprofit has its own publicly accessible website. So what they need to do is they need to post that report on their website and or include it in their annual report that's posted on the website. If they don't have a publicly available website, that's probably a very small minority of any nonprofit organizations these days, then they do have to send it to the department and the department will post it on their website. So, you know, referring to the Department of Health and Human Services for Nevada. So really in a nutshell, that's all a nonprofit has to do. The question I think that becomes a little more complicated may be whether a nonprofit really needs to prepare the report. Um, and that's where a nonprofit really has to look at specifically what activities they're engaged in. Yeah, so I guess the, my reading of the statute um, was it seemed more broad to me that, for example, if someone were to buy a silent auction item at the Nevada Museum of Art Gala and that person happens to be in that class of people, that the, then they would need to figure out that that person was on the right class of people and then report on that particular transaction. But is, you're saying that's not the case? You know, it it's really has to be, and, you know, arguably, you the way that the, the statute reads is that it's a payment donation subsidy or other contribution. So with like a silent auction item, there 
they're basically making a payment for a silent auction item. They're not making a direct donation to the organization for the activities that the organization is involved in. Because quite frankly, it's, it would almost be impossible to an extent for a nonprofit to track that information unless right. they knew specifically that this was, you know, Bob Smith with, you know, whatever manufacturer um, and he's there representing the manufacturer. So it, then you would really get into some issues as to is, is Bob there in his individual capacity or is he there on behalf of the pharmaceutical manufacturer? So it's really comes down to a, a manufacturer, and I'm using the manu pharmaceutical manufacturers kind of a catch-all. Uh, obviously, as we talked about, there are some other entities that would trigger these reports. But uh, really looking at those direct contributions, donations, um, you know, say they donate a car for, you know, that would be something that would certainly need to be reported. But if they're simply buying a ticket to the gala fundraiser for the nonprofit, I would argue that that would not need to be something reported. And that would the also the other key to this is because not only are we describing what the contribution was, what the amount is, and what who it was from, we're also looking at that what is the percentage of our gross revenue that that represents mm -hmm. and it would be almost impossible to say that 150 dollars silent auction item you know we're going to take that out of our you know earnings from that you know that fundraiser and try to really hash that out and i think the other thing to keep in mind here is what the purpose of this is the purpose is really transparency and you know, who manufacturers, who these other pharmaceutical entities are giving donations to? Is there undue influence? So it's really not to punish a nonprofit, but rather just to really get transparency with these other folks. Now, all that being said, if a nonprofit does need to a report and does not make the report, whether posting it on their website or uh, sending it over to the department, they are subject to a $5,000 fine. So, you know, that it's, it's important to look at these and say, do we need to you know, make this report? Because that is a fairly substantial monetary penalty for most nonprofits. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it sounds like it sounds like it's clearer than I thought it was, and that the organizations for whom that this will apply should know they they aren't going to be surprised by it. this. Isn't going to hit just your typical regular little nonprofit. You're going to know that this applies to you. Yeah, I think it really comes down to you know if you're engaged in activities that are considered uh, funding of of medical research, that's going to be pretty clear cut. I think the only issue is this this patient advocacy. So the Department of Health and Human Services actually has on its website a link to drug transparency and that will get folks into another area where they can click on nonprofits and there's a lot of helpful information for nonprofits to determine whether or not they need to make this report. But one of the frequently asked questions that they they pose is, you know, what does it patient advocacy mean? It, it's pretty broad. Yeah, they have examples such as providing direct patient services to patients with 
chronic debilitating and life-threatening illnesses who are confronting critical access issues. Working to promote access to affordable quality healthcare for people with chronic debilitating or life-threatening illnesses. That's really broad. And so I think that's where nonprofits do have to be a little careful to say, are we really acting in the capacity of patient advocacy for the purposes of this bill? And if so, do we need to make the report? It may come down to a simpler issue is, are we receiving any sort of donations or contributions from these entities? If you are, you're probably engaged in some sort of patient advocacy would be my guess. There's probably a small percentage that are not, but you know, if the pharmaceutical companies, anybody involved in, in pharmacy is making contributions, there's a pretty good likelihood that the nonprofit is engaged in some sort of patient advocacy if they're not engaged in medical research, funding of medical research. Okay. All right. Well, that clears it up, I think, quite a bit for me. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, so I guess the, the bottom line would be is if, if you think that this may apply to you in some way, talk to your own attorney and see if they can help you figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would also say, you know, make sure that you're tracking your donations. I know most nonprofits are very good about that, but really, if there's anything that's coming from one of these parties to to make a notation of it. So again, the reporting is for the previous calendar year. So for instance, by February 2019, nonprofits will need to make a report for any of those type of donations that they received in 2018. So they do need to be tracking that. Uh, but yes, absolutely. If there's any question of, hey, should we be doing this report, do contact your attorney uh, to you know, clarify that. I would say err on the side of caution when in doubt, but mm-hmm. definitely you know, get your own legal counsel to weigh in if there's any, any doubt there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. My pleasure. That's it for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. For Stacy Wedding, I'm Andy Schurecht. If you have any questions that we can answer or you want uh, an expert to answer those questions, please go ahead and send those to us. You can get in contact with us by going to the nonprofiteverything.com webpage, click the Ask a Question button, or you can go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage and ask a question there, as well as going on to the Facebook page for Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. You can ask a question there. Basically, you can ask a question pretty much any way you want, and if Stacy and I can get it, we will be happy to answer it. So thanks again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.